Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest on this episode is Roland Lassard, former co-CEO of Morningside with his partner, Tom Klein. Morningside is a language translation services business that served over 4,000 clients in 55 countries before the business was sold to Questel in 2021. A core piece of their thesis revolved around M&A, and Tom and Roland, through that experience, acquired deep domain expertise in creating value through methodical M&A and, more importantly, integration process. This episode is all about M&A and corporate development, both for companies doing occasional M&A and those with more programmatic strategies, which is where Roland is spending most of his time now as an advisor to CEOs. Today, Roland and I talk about the why of M&A, how M&A most often destroys value and how to avoid this, getting the team right prior to beginning M&A, assembling and leading an integration team, planning for integration and pitfalls to avoid, and the role of debt. Please enjoy this fantastic deep dive on M&A with Roland Lassard. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberly-risk.com or visit their website at oberly-risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. August, good to see you. 2024 is kicking off about now. Any predictions or you know sense on outlook for the year on the insurance side anything you're kind of paying attention to or or see on the horizon for the year so you know when it comes to insurance it's always hard to have a really exciting hot take <laughs> but, but i got a couple of things I, I thought maybe the listeners would be interested in one a lot of folks buy personal insurance for their home and auto you know we've seen double digit pricing increases in that space especially if you happen to have a house in Florida or California or coastal, even East Coast, coastal, it, it is very, very difficult to get a good renewal. And I think one of the reasons for that is there's a, a, quite a few insurance companies that are just losing money. And so they're either pulling out of the market altogether. So they're, they're saying, hey, we're not doing personal insurance anymore. That's happened a lot in California. Or they're having to totally readjust their pricing to kind of help pay for some of these claims they've had. So we're seeing clients with 20, 20% increases on their personal lines, which I know is really frustrating, but that's sort of the state of the market right now. And I hope, I hope that um, improves over the year, but that's kind of what I think on that side of the business for 24. For commercial insurance, pricing is, is better than it is on the personal side of things. I, I would say anywhere between a five and 10%. Uh, rate increase year over year is kind of what 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 I'm thinking and what we're seeing. That that obviously doesn't count for like somebody a business that owns a a warehouse in, in Southern Florida. It's going to be super expensive to insure. Any property in Florida is going to be very expensive, and same same goes for some other coastal places. So 
Outside of property insurance, I'd say the normal commercial insurance is five to five to ten percent. And so it's sort of a steady kind of year. That's kind of what it was last year. The, the biggest challenge and what we're hearing for a lot of our frustrated personalized clients is just the pricing on, on the personalized front. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Ravix Group for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Did you get to the Brad Jacobs podcast? I have not. I have not. I'm looking forward to it, though. I, I actually made a separate document just for like catch up. I'm planning on doing a lot of podcasts while I'm down here, enjoying on the weekends, just sitting back and doing a little R&R. Nothing better than a few podcasts rolling through while you're doing it. So I feel like I'm looking forward to He's top of my list. Yeah, it's a really good one. You'll like it a ton. The Met Ishbia one, Shore Capital was another good one for like deal specific stuff. So really gotten the M&A deal frame of mind in the last two weeks. So really excited for this. But thanks for coming on the the podcast for the second episode. You and Tom were on two years ago to talk more about Morningside specifically. So excited to dive into a kind of comprehensive M&A discussion as that's a, that was a core part of your strategy there. And you've had a lot of experience before. For folks who haven't listened to that first episode or aren't as familiar with your background, what's the kind of 30 to 45 second elevator pitch on Roland and then your partner, Tom, and the businesses that you ran? Well, that's great. I, I was actually looking back at that. I think it was like sometime mid-22. Yeah. And, right. you know, the one thing I would say was like, it definitely had a strong connection to M&A because that was part of our thesis, obviously, but it was more of a kind of a case study on Morningside itself. Obviously, we did a few bolt-on deals there that really created a ton of value as one of our legs of growth. And so it, it, I think it definitely connects well to this, but I know we're going to go a little deeper on that. I also think about it in a funny way, Alex, because... I feel like I must, I mean, I get a lot of inbounds from, you know, either active searchers or people, prospective searchers or even operators, and they always bring up that podcast. So I feel like it's a great thing, but also like it took, it's taken a little, a little time from Tom and I, but I, I would say in a 30 second rundown on that. I mean, again, I, I just think when you, when you're in an industry that allows for a bit of consolidation, um, and you get your business right first, it's a great lever of growth. And so in the morning side story, in that prior episode, Tom and I kind of walked through how that level of growth created value for us and for our and for our shareholders and, and for the employee base itself. And so we did a couple of bolt-on deals, extremely value creative for our organization. I think you learn a lot from it. So go back to 22. <laughs> Do you have a like a, a sense for categorizing MA? Like there's something like, you know, there's a strategy of MA which is focused on, you know, many, many deals per year. M&A is a key driver of growth. And there's kind of like more opportunistic M&A where like every couple of years, maybe you'll look at something. Do you have a, like a broad categorization of M&A strategies and maybe which one Morningside kind of fit into? Yeah, I would say like, obviously your industry has got to be, you know, you got to have fragmentation, enough fragmentation in your industry, like thinking about your role, Tam. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but like I'm a huge advocate, especially in early days to be focusing horizontally, like thinking about competitors lookalikes versus trying to cut your teeth on verticals, which are definitely harder to underwrite or execute on. I, I would say like, you know, some folks today are their entire theses, whether it's mid-market P or the search fund independent sponsor ecosystem. I think there's there's been a movement towards more consolidation pieces. And I think 10 years ago, that was like really frowned upon, even, even depending on backgrounds. But even when Tom and I, I won't say it was 10 years ago, that was 2017. It wasn't that long ago. But I think the world's evolved quite a bit since then, Alex. And I, I think, again, there's certain folks that are kind of on the forefront of that. 
and helping driving that and supporting entrepreneurs. But I, I think there are kind of two categories. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Like some folks may do one deal and, and, and that it just, it's very creative and it helps the overall organization, but the way their industry set up, is just not, it's not akin to that. And I think there's other industries that fit really well with M&A. And I think, you know, we are obviously in translation services, but a highly focused on intellectual property first and foremost. So if we were purely in translation, Tom and I could have done another 10 deals easy. Like we could have gone on into perpetuity doing deals. There's plenty to be had. But when thinking about it with a core sub niche of intellectual property, that kind of limited our overall, you know, TAM and the ability to acquire a lot of companies without diluting who we are and within the translation organ and the ecosystem focus on intellectual property. So, you know, again, that is a great industry that you could do a massive consolidation on. However, if you're focusing on really a sub niche, whether it's intellectual property, life science, or what have you, you start shrinking your opportunity set. And I think that becomes somewhat constrictive. And so if you're, if you're, if you're more bland in, within your industry and you're in, a, in an environment where there's the fragmentation while, especially the kind of like, you know, both ends of the bell curve, I mean, you could gobble up forever. Now, what that pace looks like and feels like, I think we'll get into a little more during this discussion today. But patience is a key virtue, not just in life, but also in M&A. So I think we'll get into that a bit more. But I, I think you bucket those, you know, quite concisely. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that more. Maybe like a, I know one thing you really hammer with, with M&A is you have to understand why you're doing this particular deal and maybe taking a step back beyond just one particular deal, but why, why M&A as a, as a strategy, as a component of value creation for your company, what why do M&A? Why does it make sense? And then why would it make sense for any particular deal? Can I kind of dive into that concept? I love that you talked about that last year in our, our retreat that, you know, have a why for this acquisition. I'd love to dive into that more. I think that's a great, I think that's a great, great opening. And I'm going to connect that a little bit to like, you know, why, why most M&A doesn't work, right? And why it destroys value and like connecting it back to that why. And so I think it's pretty much generally accepted. I mean, whether it's Harvard Business Review or pretty much any paper you want to read, about 70% of acquisitions fail to kind of achieve their intended outcome. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think the primary reasons are a failed integration, because not to knock anyone from a corp dev perspective, but like finding a deal is one thing, and it's not easy, especially if you don't have a platform. When you have a platform, you have a very succinct list as a strategic buyer, and so it becomes a little bit easier. And so, but, but, but integrating a company is generally where it fails. And I think the first driver of why integrating a company fails is because people don't spend enough time really thinking about the why. And what I mean by that is like measuring twice and cutting once. And it's basically the foundation for doing the transaction. And I think, you know, folks just get excited about a deal and, and they're just ready to go. And of all the folks I spend time talking to, I would say three quarters of them, which kind of aligns to the 70% metric that don't really understand why they're buying the company. And that sounds so outlandish and for lack of a better term, but saying that you want to buy a company because they have this product or they have that service or they're, they're in this geography, or I'm going to get $2 million of synergies or, or what have you, like that is not a succinct statement on why you're buying company. You need to have a very clear vision of what the end state looks like. And if that end state 
is way out in the future, like post 12 months, post one year. Like, like I, I think that's crazy. And I think that is where people have a hard time putting together that vision. And that vision needs to be both quantitative and qualitative. And the most important thing I think folks will get out of this is like, when evolving what your company, your combined company is going to look like 12 months from now, how it's going to act from a financial, from an income statement perspective and a balance sheet statement on a go forward basis. If you cannot have linkage between the activities that are going to drive that and what you're trying to accomplish, like you're, you're starting off with, with, you know, behind the eight ball before you even get going. And so it is, you cannot spend enough time strategy up front really defining what value you're trying to extract from this company. And that is also why I'm advocating hard, <laughs> hardly for, for everyone listening to really focus on lookalikes and horizontals first, because you know your business well. And so if you're looking at a competitor, you're at, you have a huge advantage to be thinking about value extraction and what you're trying to, what you're trying to pull out of this business. And so it's just very important to be able to, at the end of the day, be able to, when, when Alex asks you why you bought this company, you should be able to do an elevator pitch that ties quantitative outcomes of why you bought this business with drivers. One by themselves is not a full, succinct statement on why you're buying the company. And every step you take throughout your journey of integrating that company, whether it's communications, internally or externally, whether it's linking back to your deal book, everything you do should be connecting back to why you originally bought that company and the value you're trying to extract. Are the, are, can you give a few examples of lies that that get to the heart and root of why you would acquire a business? You gave a couple examples of you know reasons that are maybe incomplete to go buy a business, but what are some great examples you've seen for rationales for buying a specific company? Well, so, I mean, like, there's a, there's a, there's a whole plethora, but here's a great one. So for example, if you're like, if you're in a smaller business and you have inherent customer concentration, right. And you're buying, cause you're the, you're the founder you bought the company from, or the way you ran it had a couple of big fish and, you know, you got through that somehow like in, in your original purchase and you're, but you're, you're sitting, your top eight are heavy, your top one's heavy. I mean, it's a great way to blend your overall client break makeup. When thinking about that, another one is geographic footprint, right? So if you're trying to expand to a different reason, especially if your business has geographic constraints, right? Many businesses don't, some businesses do, but, but those two qualitative things, just like, Hey, they have a better, you, they have a better client facing application, or they have their, their API is hooked into a million different partners. Like, those are all great qualitative connections. But if you can't bridge those specific actions and how they're going to benefit you financially, Again, you have a gap. Just like if you sit there and say, "Hey, I'm going to create a ton of of of, of synergies on a run rate basis," and they're going to—I mean, I, and everyone's always going to jump to like SGNA salary synergies without really doing the hard work and cogs and other areas. Like, great, okay, how is that going to impact the overall value prop that you're delivering your clients? So, you again, the whole point here is you you have to have both sides of the equation. You have to have a quant income statement deal book driven. But you have to have the why underneath that and from, if you're going to leave with finance. If you're going to leave with gems, products, platforms, services, geographic footprint, uh, client concentration, so on and so forth, it has to tie back to financials, which is why another reason 
when people buy vertical acquisitions, especially at the beginning of their tenure, it is very hard to quantify cross-selling to your current client base when you have, especially if you have no history or or understanding of doing that prior. So it's kind of like it's a lot of vapor. And especially when you start getting into like high growth businesses, it becomes even more complex. Yeah, you mentioned doing horizontal deals first versus vertical. Can you talk about that a little bit more? That sounds like a good tie-in here. Yeah, I think that that's a good that is a good one. I think it, it also comes back to like what is your overall corp dev strategy, right? Alex thinking about like, hey, what what is my business going forward? And so part of it just comes to knowledge base. And so especially if you're a listener here and you, and you haven't done a deal yet. And again, like for lack of a better term, I would tout in myself, I would consider it kind of deal hogs, right? And so even when we bought Morningside, and I think we brought this up last time, was we didn't do a deal for the first year and a half, two years we owned, we owned Morningside. I mean, which was very, it tested our personal patience, right? Because all we, and we knew it was a major value lever that we wanted to pull. But before, right before we get to horizontal, and this connects to horizontal I mean, tremendously, if your business is... I don't want to say a mess, but like most businesses, when you buy them in the first year, you're, you're, you're figuring out infrastructure, you're figuring out who sits in the right seats, you're building an organization. If you go buy a company too early, so part of your corporate your corporate dev strategy is patience. If you go put a mess, a big mess, on top of a kind of a mess, all you have is a very complex mess. And you will not be able to get the synergies that you want because your business is still in flux. And so if you can, again, no business will ever get to 100%. No business will ever get perfect. If not, I would love to meet that person that has 100% perfect business. I've never heard of one, but again, maybe there's one out there. But again, at least getting your business from when you bought it being a you know a C business, you might have thought it was, you underwrote it in A to your investors, but it's really a C business based. And that's why you're there. That's the value you're creating. If it was an A, why do they need you? And so you bought a C business, right? In an A industry, hopefully, and you're an A operator. And so the key is, how do I get my business to a B at least? How do I make sure I have, from a key from a key man perspective, my org chart feels pretty good. I have the ability from an infrastructure perspective to manage my business from maybe not 30,000 feet, but at least 15,000 feet. If you're still managing your business from 5,000 feet and you do an acquisition, good luck to you because I, I'm not sure how you're going to pull that off. So patience would be my first feedback when it comes to a corp dev strategy. My second bucket to answer your question would be more around like, hey, let's cut our teeth on a horizontal acquisition and let's make sure it's not like our same size. Let's make sure it doesn't have massive customer concentration, like some basic building blocks, but it's even more important on your first deal because not only are you going to get smarter about M&A, but your integration team is going to get smarter and they probably don't know anything. And so this is the opportunity for them to cut their teeth with you. And the risk that you create by screwing this up is enormous. And that's a key thing to think about. Like, Alex, I think we talked about this last time. I think, you know, people are like, okay, well, I bought this deal and it's, you know, I, whatever, $5 million purchase price or whatever that may be, not the end of the world. No, actually it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty damning if you screw up your first business. Number one, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not just the ROI or, or the your expected IRR on that on that asset you acquired. It's also what it did to your core business. When you go to sell your business one day, people are looking at a combined entity. So if you just if you ruin all that growth in the acquired company, what does that do to the growth of your company? Right? What does it do for the trust that you're trying to establish with your board, with your lenders? How about your employee base? And so it is paramount 
that the first deal you do, you do it and, you, and you're successful. And so take a smaller bite and make sure your business is ready to go first. And I highly recommend making sure it's horizontal. Find a lookalike, find a competitor, find someone sub, sub your size. Again, you know, again, some people have smaller businesses, so they can't do this, but like you want a business that's, you don't want a business like, you know, people say a third, but like definitely not more than half your size. At the same time, if you buy a business that's got like five or 10 people in it, like is everyone going to be on the integration? And so as a rule with the integration, the whole purpose is to complement and not distract your core business. And so if it's too small, that's virtually impossible. And so you want to find that nice sweet spot where you're, where you're creating leverage from the acquisition that's horizontal and you're rolling it into your business that's, that's running it at a solid B. And that by having that B, it allows you to get not just SG&A salary synergies, which are kind of lazy synergies, to be honest with you. Like they're, you're able to get cog synergies, both data and labor. And, and again, or raw materials, depending on what kind of business you're in. I've just exchanged data for raw materials or, or what have you. Data content, however you want to think about it. And on the SG&A side, because you're able to get those cog synergies, because you're able to consolidate applications, stacks, platforms, you will be able to cut and go even deeper on the SGNA side. So that patience up front, buying a, a company that's the right size within this space that you already understand, including the end buyer and your customer of your product, like makes things so much easier. Get a W, folks, before jumping and doing something complex. So going from a, a C to a B for your, your platform company, what what key roles on that team need to be there and, and humming before doing any other M&A deals, any other horizontal, that first deal? What, ha- what roles have to be there? Great. And so I'm going to kind of take that into twofold. This is a lot of fun, Alex. So thank you, by the way. By the way, your podcast has become like the most epic podcast for like, for like this asset class. And I think it's, by the way, kudos to you because I feel like it's obviously you have this major beachhead in the search funding ecosystem, but like that's really expanded to mid-market PE. And I think it's kind of the go-to cast like for everyone well, in the space. You. So that's kind of you. Um, so well done, old, well, well done, old boy. So, <laughs> so I think, I think to your question, you know, for everyone out there on, on their core business, without being too general, I, I always tell people to think about it in three buckets. Org, metrics, and activities, and always in that order. Smart people are always going to jump to like a solution. It's like that old movie Office Space with the jump solution mat everyone loves. Like it, it was a comedy and a lot of funny, but it's actually realistic. And I think the smarter you are, the, generally the more often you are going to jump to activity because you feel like you have the solution, you have the activity. Let's go. And I always make kind of the analogy like you're driving a car from from Florida to back to New York City. And you're thinking about like, everyone's like, okay, what's the fastest route? Should I take 95? Should I go around the beltway? How do I want to do Like, that's the wrong way to start. The first way to start is actually who's driving, right? Because that's a long drive. Is everyone driving the whole way? Who's my navigator? And who's my backseat driver, right? Because everyone's got a backseat driver in their life, right? And it's, it's usually their spouse or their partner. But like, that's a different story. But I would say, figuring out who should be on your team, right? Like, do, do I have the right leaders in business development? Do I have the right leader in my back, in my COO, my operations? Do I, do I need an FP&A function to get going? Or is my CFO or my head of finance strong enough to both be debits and credits and also FP&A? So like, like getting your org chart together is very, very important. And the other thing I would say before getting activities, I think I alluded to this earlier, 
I call it like metrics, but like to me, that's just overall infrastructure. Like, how do you view your business? How are you, are you able to track your KPIs in a very efficient and quick manner? Whether you're using visualization and like things like Power BI or not, like, can you see and track your business and the success or challenges it's having from 15 or 30,000 feet? If you can't and you are in the weeds, think like for every little daily activity, how are you going to acquire a company? I just don't think that's, again, it's possible. And so for, on your core business, making sure you have the right people on the bus, right, sitting in the right seats, going back to my analogy of, of the drive from Florida, know where you are. So I'm in Florida right now. That's my current state. What is the current state of my business performance-wise? Where do I want to go? I want to go to New York. If you don't know where you are and where you're going from a metric perspective and goal perspective, how can you buy a company, right? Then and only then can you start figuring out what is the best route, aka what is the best activity. Will I go around? Will I take the belt? Will I go around DC? Will I go through DC? So on and so forth. So once you got that figured out, to your platform question, then that starts breaching into like, okay, what functions are important for my integration team? And I think that's kind of Alex where you wanted to kind of jump. I just I'm reading you on this one, and I'm figuring like that's kind of where you wanted to jump to next. And so that is a very important question. So no difference than no different than your overall organization, think of your integration team like this. And so here's a little saying I like to think about. You're starting with one company. Before you get back to one company, you're going to go to three companies. And so your three companies are your current company, the company you acquired, and Nuco. And Nuco is your integration team. And that's what's exciting for every member of Nuco, because on Nuco, you feel like you're running and leading a business. And so the same functions that are represented in your core business and the acquired entity should be on your integration team. You should have a marketing function, an HR function, a business development function, a you know, what, what, technology, whether it's software infrastructure or separate together, again, debatable, right? Like, I don't know your business. And the same with back office and finance and so forth. And so you're basically running a cross-functional project. And so with a cross-functional project, you need representation. And if you walk into the first day and you're telling everybody how important they are in the acquired asset and how you're going to listen and learn and like we're going to be one plus one equals three, how do you do that if you do not put the acquired entities, employees on your integration team? Like that's just a flat out lie from day one. And that is no way to start a relationship. And so that cross-functional team, professional services, another one, like whatever five, 10 functions you have in your business, you need representation for both companies. And that is essential. Now, in, again, some smaller companies might, that one person might be doing both HR and, and, and maybe finance or some other function. So you have to be crafty about how you do that. And the other point with that is you definitely do not want, and I see this all the time, you definitely do not want an integration team full of executives from both companies. That is doomed for failure, number one. Number two, you're not creating any bench strength. And most importantly, number three, how are you not going to distract your business if all your executive members from both companies are on NUCO? And so the key is, how do you find the leaders of the business? And we like to say, like, who are the sergeants, not just the officers, right? And I think we said this in our last podcast, Alex, and I was like, it's like those old World War I movies, right? Like, like the officer popping out of the, out of, out of the trench warfare and like being taken out versus like this old grizzly sergeant with cigar hanging out of his mouth. And like, and you think about your company folks, if, if there's a, if you have a bug issue, if it's software issue, are those folks calling the CTO right away? Are they calling the CEO right away? No, they're not. They're calling their lead developer. They're calling program manager. They're calling someone who understands it first and foremost, before 
escalating upwards. That's the person you want on your team. And when a sales rep's on a call and they're having a client, they're having an issue trying to convert, are they going to the head of sales or are they going to their VP of sales, director of sales, or the, or the, or their kind of their mentor who brought them on, right? That's the leader you need on your team. In some functions, based on bench and de- depth of a company, you might have an EC member. Like HR was one that came up a lot. It's hard to have an, an HR person that's that's not the kind of the key leader because you don't want just a generalist person. You don't want a recruiter. You need someone who has like a kind of all-encompassing view of the organization from an HR standpoint. But I, generally speaking, especially in the more in the bigger functions, how do you staff those without taking all of your executive team for both companies. And so across functions. So it, does that answer your question a little bit, Alex? A little bit. When you, when you say you don't want a team of all executives from both companies, do you mean every single executive from both companies is on the integration team so it's a lot of people? Or it's just, it's not the... No, not it's the- a brain drain. It's a drain. It's a drain from your overall company, right? And so like, you know, like in my, in my Morningside, for example, like we had a great COO, killer, great, fantastic. You know, he helped support M&A from afar, but he was never on any of the immigration teams because what I was facilitating, getting the groups going, he had to do a lot of my stuff, right? And help contribute at a higher level in maintaining the core business. And I think that's important. And even Tom and I, right? Like so we have specific roles that we divvy up, whether it's whether it's by function with the business, but it's the same for M&A. You know, Tom does a lot more of the front end and I do a lot more of the back end. And that works well for us so we that we can scale. If you have one person trying to do everything, how are you going to scale? So, you know, scale is always top of mind for both of us. And, you know, and I think you need to think about that even from an M&A perspective, right? So if, if, if you're doing all the sourcing and all the integrating, one of them is going to fall backwards. And so, like, how do you build that bench strength? And so as a CEO, I would advise you to, to especially in the first one, to 100% be involved on the integration team, but try to do it from a role of facilitation and then find someone in your company to kind of play project manager role on that. And right, and you might be spending a tremendous amount of time coaching them on that first deal, but that's gonna allow you to scale to do deal number two, deal number three, and each time a little less oversight by you, by you personally as a CEO. You mentioned also that that integration team, that is that is Nuco, that's the third company that you're running with, you know, current company and acquired company being the other two. Are, are those folks on the integration team, that third company, are they meant to be the leaders of the combined organization? Great question, Alex. And the simple answer is yes. And so let's start, let's go with that. On top of that, if you think about why did I say three companies? Well, going back to rule number one, compliment, not distract, you almost need a wall within your business. And so if every time you have a client challenge on your core business and it's bleeding into your integration team, that's scope creep. That's a distraction. And as we mentioned, what kills deals? Scope creep, poor communication, not understanding the why behind things. And so if every time there's a challenge in the core business or the acquired entity and it's bleeding through the integration team, they're not focused on building new co and having one combined company. Again, you're going to go from one to three back to one, but but you to do that, you need to kind of wall off each of these entities. Otherwise, you'll make no progress. And it doesn't mean that people on the integration team, they have a day job. But while they're on the integration group, while they're in that meeting, while they're working on those activities, and believe me, they're excited to because they're learning a tremendous amount that they cannot learn in a regular day-to-day job. And so all the deals we've done, people will be fighting for these opportunities to be on these teams after the first one or two because they realize like, wow, I get to really have a say in things. I really get to, to kind of show in, in my leadership skills. And, but again, it's very important to kind of wall off those core businesses 
because you care about realized business, your performance on a realized basis, where the integration team should really be focusing on run rate basis at, at the conclusion. Like, am I going to hit my deal book targets on a run rate basis, you know, and not be penny wise, pound foolish on a realized basis coming through. And they need to have a myopic focus on that. Otherwise, they will fail like 7% of the other people. So these are all things to give you the best opportunity to be part of that 30%. And so I think patience, going going smaller, being horizontal, being thoughtful, understanding your value your value extraction, building the right team, and, and, and having the mindset and the, and the discipline to not let scope creep of move between these organizations is so, so important. You know, Alex, I make a joke. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people or even interviewed people for jobs and ask them about like, oh, you guys just did a deal. Like, we well, did a deal. Yeah, we're, I'm, you know, I'm still involved in the integration. I'm like, when was the integration? When did you buy the company? They're like three years ago. I'm like, what? And I just kind of sigh, right? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, total fails integration, right? I don't care what anyone tells you. There's no one out there that underwrites a three-year integration. Like, never heard of them. And if they did, they, they like, not a very smart person, no offense, but like you do not underwrite a three-year window, right? Three years ago or four years ago, there was no COVID. Their interest rates were 0%. The world evolves wildly over that overset period of time. And so like you need to be thinking about time fences that are no longer than a year out, right? And so if you're, if you can, and, and again, it doesn't mean you won't find new things, have new ideas, new projects, but those exa- are exactly that. New ideas and new projects, they are not part of the original value extraction and the finite amount of scope you've created for this integration. Everything else is a distraction. Yeah, can you dive into that just a little bit more, having that that 12-month limiter, that vision for the end state? Do you? I assume you're meaning that every task, every activity within integration, whether it's systems or moving customers over to whichever person's platform you're going to use, all has to be done by 12 months. Is that, I assume you're referring to effectively that structure. Yes, 100%. And so, and that goes back to what value am I extracting, right? So you now everything always links back. So it's like, so if you're talking about extracting value that's two or three years out, do not underwrite that. For everyone listening, every investor out there, do not, under, and I don't think most of them would, but like, do not underwrite that because the probability of it happening are become less and less as every day goes on. And I would actually, like for every for all your folks out there, I would always try to target nine months as kind of like, hey, what can I get done in nine months? Knowing you may have some bleed, you may have something. But again, 12 months is fine. Most lenders will give you credit, even going backwards, like from a former or from an ad back perspective, like on expenses through that period. So like every, that 12 that 12 month window is 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 pretty common. Uh, I think from a lending perspective, for some reason, people don't take that into a planning perspective, which is where the gap and in the, in the, in the disconnect between scope is created. And so... It's just important. You start thinking about, all right, like this is what my org chart's going to look like. Am I going to be? Am I going to be on one stack? Am I going to be on one platform? Like, is my professional services going to be completely aligned? Am I gonna, my KPIs across functions should be aligned? I'm going to be on one budget. I'm going to have be on one balance statement. Like all those things. If you can't get done in a year, then your scope is too large, right? And so, and that that might even dictate in some instances in my past lives, you know, as Sterling or other prior industries I worked in, where. I'm doing M&A and my long-term goal is obviously consolidating platforms because I only want one stack, one application, I want one client-facing experience and, and I'm buying a horizontal company. However, you know, this is, goes back days when like there was no APIs and everything was hard-coded XML feeds and so on and forth. 
and you know, and, and there would be major client customization at, at, a, at an integration basis for like Fortune 100 companies. And, and so the issue that the answer was, all right, I'm going to do a hybrid. And so as part of my integration, I'm going to make the entire backend integrated. And from a client facing application perspective, I'm going to have like, a, a, you know, I mean, like almost a shell of a screen that looks the same to what they're currently dealing with, right? So it's more of a mirage, but the backend's completely integrated, but I'm still, I can't get to that 100% integration. I can't get that complete consolidation. I got to still manage two stacks possibly, but I'm going to get majority of my synergies in my first nine months to feel good about it and then have a separate a separate project around sunsetting that application completely and migrating the last of those clients. Like that may be your thesis. And to me, I would rather do that than plan for something that's going to take two or three or four years out. Like it just doesn't work. And so especially if you think about platform consolidation, really spend some time upfront during diligence on feature functionality assessments and be tough. Right. And be tough, be willing to push and 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 because it's about change management. And I think we spent a lot of time about that last time. When it comes to MA, that is core to everything. This is it's a change management project. It is not a technology project. It is not an operational project. It's not a sales project. It's it's a change management project. And so once you get grasp that concept and you're working within a certain time fence, you'll start realizing what can be accomplished and what couldn't be accomplished reasonably. Underwrite that. And it doesn't mean you don't have a follow-on project in year two or year three that is not tied to this, what success looks like and the value you're extracting and underwriting for that deal. Yeah, it sounds like this could also dictate the types of companies that you would acquire. If you can't, if there's a company that's you know, mostly integration or value extraction you couldn't get done in 12 months because the systems are too different or, or what have you, it sounds like that's something that would go in the too hard pile. I think that's right. I think... You know, and again, not to kind of circle back, but I, I would, I would really focus on what you could eat, right? What you can eat in a comfortable time, especially in the first deal. And so, to me, I think you, as you get more experience, you can get a little more complex. Yeah, perhaps this is just like a first a, deal. Yeah, it's so a first deal, one hundred percent. Like you want, like going back to kind of lessons we shared before. Like you definitely want to go horizontal. You definitely want to go to a certain size, not too small, but definitely not too big. You don't want to. You you don't want. I mean, look for look for a lot of technology that like that again if you're going to consolidate platforms quickly and efficiently and you're willing to push things through and climb migration then it matters less but like but like understand those little key things even things like who owns a client relationships these are things that you want to get done during diligence so that's the other cheat or people like to use the word hack <laughs> i love hearing all the time now like like try to Try to get ahead during diligence. So people thinking about like, hey, I got to get my QV done. I got to get my legal diligence done. Like, no, like this is a moment during diligence is a moment in time for you to start your integration plan, right? To start building your deck. Like, you know, I, I tell people as a little rule of thumb, one of the secret sauces that Tom and I, again, in, in, in many deals, again, over a dozen, like not, it didn't work all the time, but trying to get in as early as possible. Right. Try to ingratiate yourself with that management team. Spend time with them. You like if you can go hang out at the business, great. Have management meetings just to have management meetings. Don't let a broker, if you're not doing a proprietary deal, do not let the broker box you out from the staff. Like that's like a pencils down kind of conversation, personally speaking. Like that would be pencils down for me. If 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 you're hiding the team, there's something there. Right? Red flag, pop it up. How do I remediate that red flag? And like there's there's plenty of other ones, but like that is the great one of like. Management meetings are never a waste of time, right? So you want to go through your functional review, do your technology diligence, do all your diligence, get to know people on a personal basis, 
because you want to get to know them, but you also want to know who you want to determine who their key lieutenants are. Who are those sergeants within those EC members that you get to meet? Because now you're starting off already a little farther than others would, right? And it's like, can I kick off my integration team a week or two before diligent, before you close? That's a nice thing. Now, again, not all owners will let you, and I've had to go both routes. Now, what's not acceptable is not being able to kick off a microcosm of that team. I'll call it the day one team. That's a non-starter also. Like, you can't prepare with their marketing, HR, and sales guys or gals prior to close. Huge red flag, right? And so, because you have one shot as a first impression, Alex, and we spoke about that before, like, that saying is so true, and it couldn't be any truer in M&A. You're walking into a company, and all they hear about is 70% of failed acquisitions. Everyone loses their job. Their benefits change. Or so, like they get, they get, they. And most of it's not true, but like that's what they know, and that's what they see on the news, and that's what they see in the papers. And so your job is to calm that fear, right? Your job on day one is all about anxiety management. You want to reduce the anxiety in your employee base and reduce the anxiety in your client base, and so. That is paramount to get going, and that connects back to the communication concept also. Yeah, you talked also about this. A lot of this planning is kind of circling around this this deal book that you're creating. I'm, I'm envisioning this thick binder that you're like issuing to your entire <laughs> integration team. What are what are the major components of that that deal book? Um, from a deal book perspective, I think it to me it's kind of like this, like the summation of all these pieces we're talking about, right? And so. If you're thinking about your value extraction, right? Like, hey, what are what are my what's my core financial you know picture of this business? And you know, I'll give more detail on that. But like, this is like kind of how you memorialize all that, right? And so there needs to be a level of accountability on that integration team and you as the CEO for for taking this leap of faith and buying this company. Like, how are you going to create accountability without memorializing a document? Like some some model <laughs> that's like on version fifty of Excel, like throughout this deal process, not memorializing a deal, right? I want to see, like, I want to see org charts. I want to see company snapshots. I want to see headcount tables pre and post all the synergies and, 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 and reduction in force if there are. I want to know what, how we're going to migrate. I mean, how we're going to integrate. Are we going to do a client migration? Are we going to do a systems integration? Well, I, I kind of talked a little bit of that earlier, where it's kind of like a little bit of smoke and mirrors to a point. Are we going to, or is it more of a, like, if we're buying something totally vertical and it's more of a business enhancement, like not a big fan, but done that before too. I want to know what the client migration plan, when's it going to start? If you're buying a company in January, you are not migrating clients in February. I can pretty much guarantee that right now because you have features, functionality, alignment to get done. You got to align a lot of things beforehand. When are you going to start that migration? Are you going to start it in April, in May? When are you going to do that? How long is it going to take? What is your schedule? What clients are going first? Which one are going last? What's your client count versus your revenue count? I want to understand both of those because your client count is going to move a lot faster than your revenue count. I can, I can guarantee that because your big fish are going to move last because you want to, just like buying a company, you want to cut your teeth migrating clients that are smaller and less valuable because if you screw up, it doesn't hurt as much. So that plan should be in there. Obviously, your financial summary, right? Like so your run rate synergies, your prior year financials, your year over year, and you're realized, again, integration team's number one focus should be run rate, but realize matters, including cash and what, and what you're spending. So another component of that would be like, what are your one-time costs? I see that missed on the majority of deals I look at and thinking about, okay, if I have severance, how am I backing that in, right? It might be an ad back one day to your bank, but like that's real cash, right? And so like understanding what those are and then not allocating money for that is, is, a, is a risk, right? Especially when thinking about retention bonuses and stay pay, 
right? So you might have an individual that becomes very aware and you're very aware, like three months from now, they're not needed, right? Once I'm back these clients, like there's a whole bunch of folks not needed, but in the interim, like there could be someone that I might, I might pull a trigger on too fast. And again, that goes back to Pennywise, Pound Foolish, have some money in there. You know, I'd rather pay someone that was important for that, that I needed for three months, but really needed the first two months and pay them for three months. Like I, I it just, to me, that's the minimus. From a, from a perspective of a damage of, of having that knowledge gap loss, right? And I think I think of client a lot of technology folks from that perspective. On retention pay, I think I like to think about client facing folks. And so, if someone's got a strong relationship, whether they're great or not, if they're not great, your focus should be okay. I'm longer term; they're not a good fit for my business. But how do I transfer to that relationship in a very succinct, common way, right? On day one, the first thing you're telling your clients is your client contact staying the same, your price staying the same, everything staying the same in the short term. You cannot change that. So if if you need that person for X amount of time, make sure they're make sure they're happy to stay. And if you need financial incentives to do that, do so. But that should be documented in your deal book on your one-time bucket cost. And then obviously, last but not least, is a returns model. So I mean, those are kind of covering the main buckets, but like things like headcount tables and org charts are so essential because they visualize what you're trying to accomplish. Kind of like your key tasks by function are so important also. And I think about those folks. When you're running a deal and building your deal book, those should be like 15,000 foot level. So like, here's a great example, like sales function. I need to consolidate my CRMs. Okay. That's the goal, right? I have to consolidate CRMs, right? How you map fields from Salesforce, sales, or how do you do this? How you do that? Like that is for your sales, your rev ops team to figure out or your sales business. Like who's ever in charge of that application or that platform within your business. That's a 5,000 foot level. They'll know more than you do on how to do that. And if they don't, you have the wrong person or you shouldn't be a CEO. They should, they should know better than you. However, you should be smart enough to say that is part of, that is part of your accomplishment, your goal. Your, I, need, I need to align pipelines. I need to align commissions. Again, these are just examples of tasks by function. And those at the 15,000 foot level should be laid out in your deal book because that is the linkage for the value extraction of the, fi- of the quant and the quant. And it's like, how are we going to go do this? I need to be on one platform. I need to be on one stack. I need to be on one communication. I, and that's an earlier thing. Like, you can't be have some people on, on a Google package and other people on Microsoft package and, and, and think people are going to communicate effectively. It's not going to work. And so, like, that's a goal for your infrastructure group, but also your HR group because we're going to have to deal with people for that stuff. So, and that's where these things start overlapping. And, you know, not to jump too far in tangent, but like, when you think about your integration team and you as a facilitator, one of the most important things you can think about when people are just are discussing tasks and activities is highlighting where things overlap. And so, I mean, like I, I can give you a billion examples, but one could be as simple as like, hey, our brand's going to change, right? And like, okay, like, well, who does that affect, right? Or like, guess what? That's going to affect finance group even on invoices, right? Like you, things that you would, that I use that example because it's so small, people don't think about it. And they're like, all of a sudden, like, hey, we co-branded or we did this. And all of a sudden, the invoices are still going out the same way. No, 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 no. Like, even that little thing matters. So your finance person in that integration meeting needs to be listening when marketing is giving an update. The sales folks need to know when that invoice shows up, it's showing up looking in a different format. And they're aware of it. So the client calls me like, hey, why does my invoice look differently? They're not surprised. They already have an FAQ ready to go walking through why it looks different and why the pricing hasn't changed. Like important concepts when it comes to overlap balance. Yeah, certainly. Um, you've laid out a couple different timelines for like systems integrations or key hires, maybe needing to, uh, you know, stay on for a few months. Do you have a sense for benchmarks 
for over that 12 months to get to that end state, how long any process or project should be taking? Like people, projects should take this long, CRM this long, tech this long. I would say, okay, here's a great one. Here's, here's a, I'll start from the beginning. So when you close your business, when you close on a transaction, you show up there and you give a speech and you do a town hall. And hopefully we build up day one properly where we have like FAQs and we have like we're ready to go and we have breakout sessions and all sorts of stuff. I can go on for another three hours on. But what we're going to do on going back to activities for the sales function, and this is why each function, some are super heavy in the beginning, some are super heavy in the middle, some are super heavy at the end. If you're thinking about the sales function, on day one, where other people are have activities such as like going to a breakout room and getting to know, you know people and sharing their favorite sports teams with a different office or what have you, they need to start client calling clients like right away. And so a press release is basically an ego-driven activity, whether it's your financial sponsors or you yourself. And so I'm not opposed to this. I've done plenty of press releases and it's fun to put your name out there on a PR newswire and have all the fun stuff and totally support it. Not until after every client's contacted and every employee is contacted and, and, and anxiety is written down. If you let your clients find out through a, a transaction through the news and not you, you don't deserve to be a CEO. I don't, I don't have any other way to say that. And so going back to an activity, within the first week, every client should be contacted with the news of the transaction, why it's good for them, and then why nothing's changing for them at the same time, right? Which is a funny me message to mix. Like you're focusing on like, hey, life is it your client contacts the same, your pricing is the same, everything's the same. And, we're, and like, this is going to make us better because of X, Y, and Z. And those value props are also what you're sharing with your employees in the overall market. But that's a day one task, right? And so within the first week, while other people are getting to know each other and like become friends, the sales team's calling and calling and emailing. And you better have scripts for that call script. You better have a voicemail script. You better have a follow-up email script. And they should all be exactly consistent. And when someone asks a new question that you haven't heard before, add that to the FAQ list. Variability in messaging, whether it's to employees or to clients, will cause anxiety. Anxiety will cause attrition, whether it's your clients or your employees. And attrition, unwanted attrition, is the one thing that you don't want when you're buying a company. And no one likes to hear this, but when you buy a company, you're buying clients. And so if you lose a client, there goes part of the value that you just bought. And so, again, from those clients, you're hoping to derive, you know, incremental margin. You're trying to get incremental EBITDA, so on and so forth. But, like, client is the top of that funnel. And so if you screw up and lose clients or you lose key people that you need to do this, all this work, you're in big trouble. And so managing that message, not having variability is essential. So that's the day one client thing on the sales side. Here's another one that has to happen right away if you're a sales function. You can't have, especially if you're buying a competitor, you can't have a company you acquired and your company calling the same prospect with a different pitch, different price points, because you look wildly unorganized, especially since you just called them and told them you're one company, right? And so getting aligned on prospecting, which by the way, in a sales, if you have a good sales function, is never an easy task because there's a lot of egos and a lot of pride going into that. And so be smart about that. Put some time into it and ensure that you guys are, I don't, I don't care if the first week you're working off Acceler or two weeks until you can start getting better view of your CRM and using that properly, getting access seats, all that kind of stuff. But like, I don't care if you have to do it through Excel for the first three weeks. Like, okay, I've done that many times. The damage of the work putting in there that maybe you rework to a point, the damage of calling a client, especially a big client and looking stupid is way worse because you look like you don't know what's going on and that will cause them 
hey man, they got a lot going. I wonder if I should look for an alternative supplier in case something goes wrong here. You don't want that crossing their brain. And so here's another one, again, maybe like on your product or platform team. When you start thinking about, hey, you know, this is the URL or this is the integration they work with and we, we're going to consolidate platforms. I might have done a demo or two during diligence. You know, I, you know, they have a great dashboard. Ours is weak. We have this. They have that. No, those first few times, the first month or first few weeks, you got to dive in way deeper. I want a very clear understanding of scalability. I don't know if you do hardest testing or whatever you got to do. Understand scalability all the way to feature functionality and actually not just feature functionality, who's actually using it. I can't tell you how many times people are like, hey, we got this really cool functionality that we built for our clients. And like, you guys don't have that. You just bought us. You start getting into it and no one's using that functionality. So it doesn't matter. So when you start thinking about consolidating platforms, if you go and develop that functionality, you're just throwing more bad money at a bad function, right? And so really understand feature functionality and, and, and then developing, close those gaps. And closing those gaps generally takes like three months in my, in my, in my life, you know, like whether it's URL integration phase, it doesn't make a difference. Usually like between close, I can't start migrating clients for probably four months. You know, I mean, something like that, Alex. And like, and, and that migration is usually like maybe two months, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that to migrate clients. Um, because your first group is like more of a pilot group, small clients, like, you know, just getting them to actually realize that, that, that you're, that you're, a, that you're a client and you need them to, and all the training that goes with that. And like, you, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're breaking a few eggs maybe, but hopefully not, but you're really getting your process down. And so then you might have a, a week or two of learning from that. And then move. Also, on that feature functionality, if there's something essential and it's going to take four or five months to develop, the clients that are using that application become the end of your migration. So you can get that done, but you're not waiting. Everything doesn't need to run in series. Some things can run in parallel. And so you're getting some of that done you know, right away. Infrastructure, another great example, you can't sunset a stack until everyone's migrated. So that's at the end, like the end of the application, of your, of your integration. However, you need everyone, going back to what I said earlier, talking on the same phone system. You need talking on using the same, whether they're, they're using Slack or Teams, or like you need everyone to be able to communicate effectively ASAP. Priority number one for that group. However, the step, the sunsetting a stack might not happen for seven or eight months, right? And so, and then make sure you're looking at contracts during that time. Do you have an evergreen clause in there where you're going to renew an entire, your cloud application all over again? Because now you just now you bought in for three more years. Think ahead, same with leases. And so that's a great example of infrastructure where you have an activity eight months down the road and you have an activity month one. And so lining up all those activities by function at 15,000 feet as a goal, that's important. Realizing priority and timelines on those so that you can feed those, I like to call it seed plant with each function. So they have like, they walk in day one, their first integration meeting, their planned activity bucket is full. Of things that they that they you told them they need to accomplish as, as part of that function. Some of them might be six months out. Some of them might be three weeks out. But that will be kind of like their own little Gantt chart. Yeah, you, you've mentioned a couple of different styles of integration or or categories of integration. Mentioning your your favorite is to go into one brand, one system, one team. But you outlined a handful of others, client systems hybrid and then kind of an enhancement support. Can you outline some of the different categories of integrations? So by far the best one for horizontal is like 
not even close is client migration. And we spent a lot of time chatting that already. Like that is, you can, that means you are literally, you have one of everything, right? And you are one company completely. I don't care if you're sitting one, one, one offices and, or one group of folks is in India, one's in Israel, one's in the US, one's in like, and it like doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You're one company because you're on one stack, one application, one platform. You're offering the same set of products. Maybe you got one new product, whatever. Like it's, it's, that's what you're offering. So that, that's a lookalike. Very, very simple. You you will always go deeper on synergies and that mindset than anywhere else, period. Like it's just because you are literally going as deep as you could possibly go. Kind of the the alternative, which I explained, is like, you know, a systems integration where like the back office and how you make your sausage is completely aligned, right? Like say, like, hey, this is this is how this works, but there's for example, there's there's certain feature functions that I can't get done in time. Or I bought a company that's got you know, some mega clients that have, like, this is an example for me personally, where I had homegrown systems that were hard-coded, integrated, to give them a, an experience that was similar or better was going to take time. And if I waited for all that, everything hangs in the balance. My time bench goes over a year. Many people sprint to stop and talk about demoralizing. There's like, think about your own life. Like sprinting to stop is like the most painful thing. I don't give you running or doing anything in life. That's painful. So you make a choice and say, okay, like on the back office, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be like, I'm, I'm going to have like a cloak or I'm going to in front and for the client. So they're going to think everything is the same, but behind the curtain, everything has become one, right? Everything except for a, my platform and the stack hosting it, you know, for example, in, in, in kind of a technical business services business. And that's okay. You'll get 85% of the synergies and value that you wanted to create, but you won't get that last 10 or 15%. And you need to keep expertise on an application that you don't want anymore, right? So not only do you have the cost of those individuals to do that, like your client facing folks, if they're, if they're, if they're covering clients on both applications, you need to know both applications. Like there's an opportunity cost. There's a bandwidth cost. Like there, and so when I say 80, 85%, like your synergies might be like, well, Rowan, I, I, there's only, there's only, there's only like 5% of my synergies left or 10%, just, just the hosting fees and this. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a lot of hidden costs with that. And so what I call that would connect to the hybrid model where it's like, okay, as part of the integration, we're going to do the system integration. And then once that's all done, then, and our deal is done. Now we're going to, for the last 10 or 15%, as part, a second of initiative, we're going to do a client upgrade project, a client, you know, like a client, a platform consolidation project as kind of the hybrid approach. Like you don't want to do one without the other. And the other bucket, and for for those folks out there doing like hold codes with very different end user client bases, like, which is a whole separate beast. If there's not a tremendous amount of cross-selling and overlap and you're basically just hold coding two different businesses, like you're more of a consulting approach. And I'll call that business enhancement where you're taking a business and you're getting some shared services leverage you're optimizing and, and realizing like, Hey, like I got a better contract on legal I, or my expenses are consolidated. We're going to, we're going to move from AWS to Azure for both of us. So I can get consolidation on my hosting fees. Like I'll do some stuff on the business enhancement stuff, but like, I'm really still running two separate businesses. I need a separate GM or MD to run that business. So it's, it, you're not going to get nearly the synergies that you're looking for. And again, in some hold coal models that works, but if you're an entrepreneur looking at a business, looking at acquisition like that, I would stop, breathe, and then go back to how we started this conversation around value extraction. Is this the right thing for your organization? 
And I think unless you have a very specific thesis around whole co model, it's not a good deal, right? Because why do you want to have that distraction to your core business? If, if, if your end buyers, that's a great way to test it. Are, are your buyers the same? And if they're totally different, totally different, like take a pause, especially in your first deal. Like, is this the right time to do something like this? And the answer is probably not. One part of your your deal book you outlined too within this integration and all these different migrations is tracking certain KPIs and progress. A lot of these, especially with systems, I've, I've done system integrations. It doesn't always feel like you don't always get the, get a strong sense for where you are in the process. But do you have a sense for metrics to track to see if you're on or off track for that 12-month end state goal? I do. So Alex, I feel like you've done too many deals now, I think, because I feel like you're asking too many good questions here. Um, so, so I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, for the audience, I'm gonna put things in two different buckets. And the first bucket, I'm spending like very little time on. Number one, you need to have KPI, KPI alignment across all your functions. And so, one of the things I like to build on day one is a lexicon, where you're looking at terms they use and acronyms they use, and the terms you use and acronyms you use. I'll bet you 80% of them might sound different, but are exactly the same. And the ones that are different, you need to align. You can't have a software development function for one company using different metrics and goals and KPIs and what your software development company, same with your project manager departments, whatever, client service departments, sales departments, everyone needs to be on the same nomenclature, same KPIs. They need to align by function on what success looks like. So that's one bucket. But now going back to your question around what deal books and tracking mechanisms, that is, I would say, one thing that maybe I personally don't remind folks enough about when talking with them on M&A. And so you know, if every other listener, you're laughing when they hear this, but like a lot of times, even my first one, you you know, you, you're in, you're you're in your first month, you do your day one, you're feeling great, and then all of a sudden, your 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 board or your shareholders are looking for an update, and you write like a dissertation, like five pages typed of like all the great things that you're doing, like, and generally speaking, there's very little quiet there, and like that's a waste of your time, their time, and everyone's time. Like it's great, it's cool, a lot of commentary, but on a tracking perspective. It's very important to have something monthly that can go out, right? It's going to save you a lot of time as an operator. It's going to save your, and it should be repurposed. Every time I've done this, my lender was accepted what I put forth along with my board and everyone else. And it should be like a simple one pager that goes out every month. You should have your qualitative wins and gems, right? Like a few bullets over there, but like, you need also put in, you need, like, there should be a top part that's all quant because this is where people sometimes will be so excited about the integration and one plus one equals three and like going from one company to three companies, they forget there is still very much importance around how that company's performing on a month to month basis. So that document, one pager, you know, it should be very simple. Your qualitative pieces, your quant pieces should have things like, what was budget for revenue? What was my actual revenue? What is my variance and why? And then as you get, and again, as you get farther, one of the most important things are like, what were my synergies Re, what, on a realized basis? What should they be? What are they actually and why? What is my run rate supposed to be and why? I can't tell you how many times where on a realized basis, like say for a month, maybe three, four months in, be off a little bit, sometimes revenue-based, sometimes like it could be a client migration bucket. But on a run rate basis, I'm gonna I'm getting deeper. Like I'm I'm trading I'm trading a penny today for a dime tomorrow, and everyone will want everyone will want that. And so having that track clearly in a very succinct way, a very easy to read way, 
one table with a bunch of bullets underneath it with your variance analysis done will go leaps and bounds for not just you as far as effort and time. It also becomes repeatable. So every month, instead of writing up a four-page paper on something or every two months or you get too busy, you don't do it, it's a simple spreadsheet with you know a simple PowerPoint slide, whatever you want to call it, that's got your key quant goals, as we mentioned, like from run rates to realize all across the board from revenue down to gross margin to EBITDA. And I like to split up COGS two ways, one data and labor. And I like to split up SGNA two different ways between salary and non-salary expenses and just bucket them like in those four buckets because it becomes very easy and then realize the run rate for both of those, for all four of those. And that will give you so much purview into what's going on with the acquired entity. It's amazing. And then again, on the bottom, put some of the gems you found in, put some of the hair you found. Those are great talking points, but like you, you, but you need the linkage back to the quant side also. Is that helpful, Alex, from a tracking perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into kind of key takeaways, do's and don'ts, can you talk about the role of debt in all of this? There's a there's a ton of value you get as you scale and have a flywheel going with an M&A where cash flow and debt become the larger drivers of your ability to acquire versus you know equity on your balance sheet. Can you talk about kind of yeah, I, your I view? That. That's a great question. So. Obviously, I think everyone like that's listened to your podcast has a lot of respect for leverage and, and, how, and how important that is for maximizing returns. So, like, there is there is there should be no debate debate amongst any of us, and anyone can build a model, even a business that's growing ten percent with a little, small margin improvements and some leverage. Like, you'll you'll be you'll create value. Just again, you'll enhance value largely with leverage. However, I think everyone will be shocked when I say this, and so. I'm a big fan of getting to a flywheel and Thomas, and that's kind of how we did it and both of our past lives together. And so up front, you know, I just, I see a lot of folks requiring additional equity in their first year or two. And, you know, to me, that's a foreign concept. Like I just, I never even thought about that. Like as an operator myself, like going back to the well, you can only go back to the well so many times in your life. And I don't care if it's for good things or bad things. It's just, it's not something that you should want to do. And so my only pitch to folks would be like thinking about that first year or two, right? The first year and a half, two years, as I mentioned earlier, getting your business from that C that you sold everybody was an A and making sure it gets to a B and like, what, what, what do you need to make that happen? During that first year and a half or two years, you're also going to put cash in the balance sheet, right? And so all of a sudden you get your first deal and you got a little bit of cash in the balance sheet and debt, and now you're moving, right? And then the, then the next deal. so. And every, I mean, like Tom and I, the last deals we did were all 100% leverage, 100% leverage. Like, you know, the first one, like, again, cutting our teeth, maybe a little bit of a mix. And so what I would be, I would be cautious of folks of going too thin too early when it comes and then going back to the well. I'd rather be a little more upfront and get, make sure my business is what it is, make the investments that are required in year one and year two. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, like poison capital, I'm not saying put a pile of cash in your balance sheet and let it sit there. That is not a good use of capital. But upfront, when you buy your platform company, you should know what investments you need to be making and right and like how much, and, and especially like what your even margin really is and what's going to get to in the first year and a half. And like really think that through so that when you do get to your acquiring process, you have the ability to end up getting a flywheel going. And when you do that, your returns are exponential. Like the little bit of extra cash you might you might need it in year one to get to get your structure right, it, it doesn't matter. It pales in comparison to like getting on a flywheel when you're using all debt. And so, you know, again, every business we've been in, that's exactly how it went. 
right? The first deal maybe was a mix. And then after that, I mean, every deal is on debt. And you can only do that if you have, if you're running your, your C business and it's running to a B or maybe an A or an A minus at least. And your first deal, you, you're, you're, you, you, like, again, I used to love, I used to love looking at like, what, what did I pay from a multiple perspective pro forma? Right. So could I, if I was paying whatever 10 X after I synergized it, could I get it to five X? Right. Like that is real value creation right there. And, and again, that was always, what did I pay? And then what's my arbitrage post instead of trying to hope for multiple arbitrage from getting size. Okay, great. To me, I look at that as a bonus, but if I, if I can get there just from synergizing businesses, I, I got a winning platform. I have a winning platform. So use that, use that smartly, get a flywheel going. But beforehand, make sure your business is well suited to do this. If you need to go back and make a bunch of hires to get this done the right way and put a bunch of, you know, fix your technology debt, you need to do that first and foremost. And that should have been from your first check. Absolutely. Yeah. So wrapping things up, what are common do's, don'ts, and key takeaways that you like to share with folks? Well, I think we'll go back to how you started the conversation. Do spend time up front. Focus on the why. Focus on the value extraction. It sounds so common sense and remedial, but I promise you it is not. If you do it properly, think about your deal book, having to draft that, you know, before you close and like thinking about all the work that goes into that. Do you have a succinct value extraction statement that's both qua and qual that you can constantly look back to and feel good about? Number two, from a dues, have a finite scope. I think of any large project. Again, there's a lot of things like people cutting too fast, but like the two main drivers of failure are scope creep and poor communication. I've learned that many times over many mentors and many assets in my life. Scope creep is the number one killer. There's always another idea, another project, another thought. We can do this. We can do that. And before you know it, you're two, three years down the road. You're like, wait, what just happened to me? Keep your scope locked, right? And that scope, you start at value extraction at 30,000, get it at 15,000 feet and let your folks take them from 15 to five. Number three, do these are all topics you talked about. Build your integration team with the right folks. It's no different than your company. If you feel like, hey, getting my org chart for my company is the right, the most important thing. By the way, it is. If you believe that, why would you not believe that for your integration team? Spend the time, find people that are not resistant to change. Find people that are the that are the leaders of your business behind the curtain, not just by title. Those are the people you want on your team. And the last do would be build up cadence and a process for communication, both internally and externally. Whether it's your integration team, they meet the same time for the same amount of time every single week, Wednesday at two o'clock, whatever that is, like non-negotiable. This is how we do, you know, whether you're using a quad chart or four box, whatever you're using for a communication tool inside, everyone uses it. Not one guy gets to use one communication tool, one girl gets to use another feature. Everyone's using the same communication tool. How you Update progress and track progress, as you asked. Very simple. Keep it simple. One pager, external, clear cadence and process of communication. Those are like those are the, probably the four. I would say key takeaways on the do's, on the don't. Like I love opening this with this one. Like, don't assume absolutism. You don't have papal infallibility. You're buying a company. If you truly believe in one plus one equals three, you are the choir, and do not forget that. But if you if they do nothing better than you, gosh, man, you must have, you must be the smartest person in the world. It's, I guarantee you're going to learn things from them if you open your ears and listen. 
So don't assume that your company is the best at everything. Find things they do better. It's a win for the culture. And it's a win for the company. And sooner or later, it will be a win for your shareholders. And the last one would be, <laughs> this goes back to your corp dev strategy. Don't be afraid to walk away. A bad deal is way worse than no deal. And like, there's an emotional component to that. There's a pride of authorship component to that. And there's nothing worse than putting, like, like there's one thing worse than putting two or three months of work in and then being like, this isn't what we what we thought it was. It's actually doing that deal. And so I implore you to have the discipline to be able to walk away when the red flags that you identify cannot be remediated or not controlled. And so have that, have that discipline and it will serve you well. I love the comment on there must be some things that the other company does better than you. And that Brad Jacobs podcast I told you about and his, his book, he talks about just asking every employee at the new company, you know, what is, what is, what's your one idea for improving the company? What's the one thing that we should be doing better? And City's always surprised that every single person has something. There's always something that they could do better or something that they do really well that they shouldn't touch and shouldn't mess with. I think that's, I think that's really well said. And folks, if you build your integration team right, those ideas and concepts, because you, you've built your team with representation from both companies by function, will come out in those meetings. Like if those will come out. Your job as a facilitator is to figure out which ones of those are really just resistance to change. And they're not that great, not that important. Like it's a functionality the client doesn't use and which ones are the gems, right? And so as you, as you go through your business and don't underwrite gems, gems are the upside. So, you know, you mentioned one time, like, Hey, you know, like what kind of room do you have? Well, historically you're going to find gems, things that you didn't know were so great when you, when you get under that hood. And those are the upside things that help you outperform or if you, or if you're underperforming a little bit, help you get to par. And so. People will tell you amazing things if you have the discipline, patience, and humbleness to actually listen. And so listen, listen, listen. I love that. My wife tells me that all the time, Alex. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, I don't, I don't know how well I do it. Yeah, it's good advice. We can, we can all take a little bit of that. <laughs> awesome. Roland, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. This was a ton of oh, fun. Man, great time. Great. Thank you for having me. What a great time. I always enjoy speaking with you. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.